If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening. Welcome, everyone. I've known these three wonderful writers in different ways. I met Philip Marsden in a very special place. We're thinking about place tonight. A very special place downstairs just now. I've known him for precisely 90 seconds. Um, <laughs> however, I have known his books for considerably longer than that, and they range across fiction and non-fiction. Uh, they uh, attach many awards to them, um, as if by magnetism. Um, but I owe a particular debt of gratitude to him for writing what is still pretty much the only book on its shelf concerning the extraordinary culture, history and people that are the Armenians. Um, and it's amazing that the uh, crossing place, which I think is over 20 years old now, still remains uh, effectively untouched uh, as a general and crucially important book about those uh, extraordinary people. So many, many thanks to Philip for that book, among many others. I've known Ken um, somewhat longer than that, um, in person and on the page, for many years and collaborated with him in many different guises, um, and uh, perhaps little known to you among his many awards and, and many uh, prestigious uh, accomplishments is the fact he still remains, I think, unchallenged um, in holding um, the, the crucial prize of the tallest place writer in England. Um, <laughs> although I actually haven't seen Philip and him up and back to back yet, and we might, we might find some, 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 close, uh, some close rivalry there. Um, so Ken, obviously, um, head and shoulders above many of his contemporaries, um, but of course not, not tonight on the page. Julian Hoffman I've known for a couple of years. Um, he is the newest writer in the field, shall we say, uh, in terms of our wonderful panel tonight. But um, he knows what he's doing, um, because uh, I first encountered him at the Shorelines Festival, a wonderful festival run by Rachel Lichtenstein on the Essex coast. And um, what he did, basically, was raise the bar considerably. He cleared the floor uh, in terms of competition with a mixed-media presentation about the Hoo Peninsula that left everyone, including the next person up, Robert McFarlane, gasping. Um, Robert McFarlane knew he had to raise the bar. He rolled his sleeves up. He said, let's do this thing, and he did his thing. <laughs> but he acknowledged that Julian Hoffman was right in the zone, and he indeed he is, because this book, his very new book, The Small Heart of Things, which is now in a very lovely pocket-sized paperback, um, has won three awards, including, conveniently for our purposes, won just last weekend, a major outdoor writing prize in the US. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, all three of our wonderful panellists tonight. Um, you'll notice there's a certain gender flavour to our panel, um, which of course we, we can't avoid, but uh, it's not for want of asking many wonderful uh, women place writers to join us. But we are very pleased indeed that Rachel Lichtenstein, who was going to be joining us here, will be joining us uh, towards the end of the uh, evening at the back of the uh, audience, coming from an unalterable uh, teaching commitment she had. So um, we hope that in some way, with Rachel's presence, uh, we honour the great place writers uh, who are women, um, uh, in this great uh, evening tonight. So that's the end of uh, all I'm going to say now, except to introduce Philip, uh, who will tease out for us the first of our, our, our senses of what it is to consider place um, uh, and, and also the idea of home and belonging, because that's something I think that runs through all three of our writers' presentations tonight. So do please welcome Philip Marston. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gareth, and thank you, everyone. Um, 
I'll kick straight in. I'm going to start uh, with a, sh a short reading about the conception of this book. I wanted to, to look at the sort of two streams that came into this book, um, one personal, one historical. Um, and they, they sort of fed into, into a way which um, the two opening readings will, I hope, illustrate. Uh, it's, it's not an easy book to, 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 to categorize. It combines elements of history and personal memoir and references to other journeys and archaeology and all stations between, basically. But so what I, what I wanted to do was to try and present it to start at the beginning to show how um, the personal feeds into it. And around the time I started work on this book, um, me and my family moved house, or rather we spotted a house in the local newspaper. We live in Cornwall uh, and we were living in a perfectly happily in a, in a seaside village where our children had just started and we were all convinced that somehow after that sort of chaotic period of early parenthood, somehow things were settling down. Then we spotted this, this small ad in the West Britain. So I'm going to read a, 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 short, a short passage about how um, the impact of that arrival and, and seeing the house and, and what it did um, to me. On that first May morning, seeing the farmhouse half hidden in the landscape, run down, as, as it was described by the estate agents, I was struck not just by the beauty of its setting, but by its pragmatism. Built at the time before railways made their full impact on Cornwall, the farmhouse was designed for work. The garden was a narrow strip of grass before the proper business of pasture. Mains power only reached the house in the 1980s. Its water was still pumped up from a hand-dug well. A field was attached, and it rose slightly, sheltering the house from the worst of the wind, before dropping on three sides to a tidal creek. Standing in the, in the field on our first visit, seeing the house with only the roof and top floor windows visible, I convinced myself that it represented an ageless integrity with the land around it, and felt sure it would pour beneficence over anyone who was lucky enough to live there. Such delusions are only possible for the besotted. And in the days and weeks that followed, I learned that falling in love with a place meant exactly that, with all the downsides, the yearnings, and the mood swings. Tentatively, we put our seaside house on the market, and so began an elongated, one-sided courtship. If I heard mention of the farm's name, or even of the neighbouring village, my heart would jump. Too often my working hours were interrupted by a desk-smothering spread of the 1 to 25,000 ordnance survey. I took imagined walks along the tracks in the woods near the house or along the creeks. After a year of such suspended passions, the farmhouse was suddenly withdrawn from sale. I felt as if the sky had fallen in. Then it was put back on the market and fickle as a teenager, I was bubbling with bonhomie again. So I won't bore you with um, the saga of uh, buying and selling other people's property stories are notoriously dull, but we, got, we, we managed to get the house at last after two years of waiting. And um, two years of suspended, that suspended passion and really being sort of in a state of high um, anxiety. But it, it brought to me, to, to, brought to me the first time the notion of how powerful place could be. A lot of my previous books and previous journeys had been around place. Gareth mentioned Armenia, Ethiopia, other places in the Middle East and so uh, the ex-republics of the Soviet Union. 
But the idea of place hadn't really crystallized in my mind. So it was only about halfway through the writing of this book that I realized that it was actually about place. So this, this uh, very short section is about an interesting distinction about place, and, and one could go on discussing for, for days probably about, about what place exactly, what we mean by place. But this is a, a short um, resume of some of the reading and some of the things that I picked up on it. Some years ago, in the pages of academic books and journals, there was a good deal of discussion about the difference between space and place. Very loosely, place is somewhere distinctive, where people react to and live with a particular topo topography around them. Space, on the other hand, is an idealised location, abstracted from the real world, a template which could be dropped over any point on the Earth's surface and allow meaningful discourse about it. Most of the recent work on the subject is driven by the conviction that place has been having a hard time of it for too long, and that space should just move over now. The political geographer Arturo Escobar was not alone in finding that the imbalance could be traced far back into the history of ideas. Since Plato, he wrote, Western philosophy, oftentimes with the help of theology and physics, has enshrined space as the absolute, unlimited, and universal. While banning place to the realm of the particular, the limited, the local, and the bound. <coughs> the long-term emphasis on space has had unforeseen consequences. Monoculture and farming, homogeneous housing, duplicated shopping malls, biodepletion, and the catastrophic destruction of habitats, the abiding sameness that, contempor that characterizes contemporary life. The making of standardized landscapes, wrote Edward Ralph in his 1976 book, Place and Placelessness, results from insensitivity to the significance of place. What appealed to me as I settled into the orbits of my new life was that for many of these professors of social science, the idea of place appeared to rise above the utility-carpeted corridors of their faculties and offer instruction in the very practice of living. To be human, writes Tim Cresswell of the University of Wales, is to be in place. Edward Casey is Professor of Philosophy at the State University of New York, the author of several books with titles like The Fate of Place and Getting Back Into Place, and he wrote, to live is to live locally and know first of all the place one is in. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Philip. Extremely useful uh, opener for us, not least because it brings some of the terminologies around thinking about place into the mix, but also crucially grounds it in the experiential, the meeting of people with sight, which is uh, crucially important. Thank you very much. Julian uh, has had long residences in London, in Canada, but now finds himself and has done for a decade or so, I think, uh, near the Prespa Lakes uh, in Macedonia, Greek, Albanian border area. Um, but Julian, you could tease out for us a little bit the sense of that, but also this larger sense of what it means to belong, I think, in okay. your presentation. Good evening. It's a real honour to be here tonight and a pleasure to be back in London again as well. My wife and I used to live in London before moving to a mountain village beside the Prespa Lakes in northern Greece, and that's where I wrote my book called The Small Heart of Things. The Prespa Lakes are in fact shared by three countries, Greece, Albania, and the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, all three coming together around two bodies of water. 
And by trying to put down roots in that crossroads region, I began wondering about the wider landscape of home in our lives, particularly in relation to the natural world and the places around us. So I'm going to begin this evening by reading part of the book's opening essay, an essay called Shadow Grounds, in which we'll travel to those mountains beside the village where we live. Shadow Grounds. It was that time again. Each year it occurred as an unexpected grace note, a sudden flourish to accompany the slow fading of summer, like the lifting of haze from the lake, the leaving of birds. Increasingly, though, it was a quieter affair, signaled by the heaving chorus of fewer and fewer animals. The Sarkatsani were on the move again, bound for the winter quarters, and they were taking with them the cows, goats, and sheep that constitute their livelihood. The fully loaded trucks and trailers had wound their way down the frosted mountain valley early that morning, and were now paused in our village square. There were last goodbyes to be said, wishes for a safe winter to be offered, coffees to be bought for the road. While some of the drivers mingled around their trucks, smoking cigarettes or checking oil levels and brake lines, the deep moans and tremulous lowing of the animals rose and fell like a collective breath. The warmth of the jostling bodies materialized through the slatted sides of the trailers as a thin film of cloud, and the air was rife with the reek of herds. The Sarkatsani are transhuman shepherds, pastoralists who move with the turning of the seasons, journeying back and forth with their animals between summer and winter grounds. Traditionally, they wintered their large flocks on the plains and coastal flats of central or southern Greece, and migrated on foot to reach summer pastures in the mountains of the north. But the earthy tumult of those marching herds was replaced long ago by the convenience of trucks. Many of these vehicles have since been silenced as well, as the Sarkatsani become increasingly settled in their lowland villages. Despite this, a few small communities can still be found on the high summer meadows, continuing their centuries-old custom of calling two places home. Certain places follow us, like shadows. At times, they lengthen and stretch implausibly tall, until they tower above our lives, or slant decisively away, as if trying to flee. Occasionally, they appear not to be there at all, so exact is the overlay of self and place, so precise the meridian sun. Whether seen or not, they are undoubtedly close, tethered by subtle threads, spooling us forever back, either in memory or actuality, even dreams, to landscapes that articulate something of ourselves. My wife and I made a home for ourselves in the mountains of northern Greece, and one summer, in the early years of living there, a friend and I set off at dawn to climb amongst them. We used the river as our guide, winding between boulders and beach. By early morning, we had edged beyond the tree line and were walking over pale, tussocky meadows that sloped sharply towards the rising sun. As we rounded a fold in the high, grassy hills, I pointed out the Sarakatsani encampment. We stopped to admire it, as if a rare and unlikely bloom. The hamlet comprised seven or eight thatched huts, set in a mountainside scrape as neatly as inlaid stones. 
The elegant summer dwellings had been fashioned from tall reeds hauled up from the fringes of the Prespa lakes, and each wicker dome was encircled by an earthen yard marked out by the braiding of thin branches. While we stood there, a man and woman stepped out of the beehive home and began waving us over. Before we could even introduce ourselves, we'd been seated at a rough wooden table in their yard, unexpected guests at a mountain breakfast. Andania brought a plate of tomatoes to the table, followed by cucumbers, olives, and creamy slices of her handmade sheep's cheese. It hadn't been pasteurized yet, and still carried the wild and musky tang of the hills in its taste. Yorgos brought a clear plastic bottle of fiery, grape-distilled raki and poured each of us a glass. He then withdrew an unopened pack of cigarettes from the pocket of his shirt, I watched him strip its cellophane and crumple off the foil, then tease out a single cigarette so that it poked obligingly above the others when he ceremoniously laid the packet before us on the table. We tend to equate shepherding with rootlessness, the absence of a home. But what struck me as we sat together that morning was the realization that Yorgos and Andania weren't passing through. Despite the seasonal nature of their dwellings, they had welcomed us with the same meticulous ritual and gracious hospitality that characterize many Balkan houses. The entire mountainside was their hearth. Our hosts were probably in their mid to late fifties, and had been grazing their flocks on these same summer slopes for as long as they could remember. Twice a year they set out across half the country in concert with the seasons. Both directions bringing them closer to home. They said their hearts belonged to the mountains, though, even if the encampment was now little more than a reminder. A decade earlier, and there had been as many as sixty or seventy people spending the season here. On feast nights, musicians played the Sarakat sunny songs until dawn, while their kinfolk danced beneath an umbrella of bright stars. I looked around in the drenching daylight, wondering how far the raw wails of the clarinets would travel in the measureless mountain dark. As elegant as a simple weave, I saw that home is a concordance with place. Unfortunately, there aren't enough of us to celebrate now, said Andunia. What about your children, I asked. They both looked at me and smiled. Young people want other things, said Yorgos matter-of-factly. Our son, he's studying political science at the London School of Economics. We raised toasts to each other's health and laughed at the strangeness of things. Although I never saw Yorgos and Andania again, their story of being at home in more than one place has stayed with me. What would it mean to cultivate deep connections with a range of places? What might it mean to forge strong and loyal ties with a variety of different locales? We live in an age, I think, where we're losing so many of our sustaining places. Whether it's ancient woodlands or allotments, we're losing our sustaining places to development and to extractive industry, to disinterest and to greed. And I've come to believe that anything that strengthens our connections to the natural world or makes meaningful our daily arrangement with the places around us is a form of resistance, a kind of love forged with home that has the potential to be fiercely protective. The artist Alan Gusov once wrote that 
The catalyst that converts any physical location into a place is the process of experiencing deeply. And that's what I wanted to explore in the small heart of things, that process of experiencing deeply, how we might go about fostering relationships with the natural world, how we might go about perhaps being more at home in the world. And although the book looks at a, a range of different places alongside the Presper Lakes region, it really only has one guide throughout, and that is two lines by the poet Rilke. Rilke once wrote that everything beckons us to perceive it, murmurs at every turn. And what I love about Rilke's words is that he's showing us a way to approach the places around us. He's showing us a way to be more inclusive in our embrace of the natural world, advocating an equality of interest by suggesting that everything, however large or small or seemingly insignificant, is beckoning us to perceive it. And he seems to say, or this is how I interpret his words at least, to let into our lives the wild and unpredictable and extraordinary, but also to let inside the ordinary and the unsung and the easily overlooked. There's possibility, he suggests, in the smallest of things, that when we pay close attention to the places around us, there are murmurs at every turn. And as Rebecca Solnit once so succinctly put it in relationship to openness, when you give yourself to places, they give you yourself back. Well, thank you very much, uh, Julian and uh, Gary. Um, I want to kind of take off from where Julian just left off, which is about how we learn to value place, because I think it's also true that for many people, you, we don't know place until someone else is represented it for us. And then this is a truism in literature that we don't know Dublin until we've read Joyce and we don't know Paris or the Brittany until we've read Proust and we don't know Chicago until we've read Bella. Red Bellow, but there is obviously an interaction between representation and the life of these towns and cities and plains and R.S. Thomas and the Welsh landscape and so on. So representation is very, very important. And I want in the 10 minutes available really to talk about those places that actually problematise representation and create problems uh, and difficulties uh, in the public eye about what is and what is not beautiful. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, I, uh, getting to my 50s and a lot of domestic obligations fulfilled, I hope, uh, my wife and I went started going back to Essex, where we'd both grown up, and we'd both spent our childhood holidays, various caravan sites around the estuaries, and we really grew to love this landscape very much. Most people think of Essex as a series of rather dismal roads, uh, you know, the A13, the A12, uh, the A127 and so on um, but actually it's, it's connected by five rivers with all with beautiful stunning estuaries and once you get on the coastal path you're in literally another world um, and it was at this time of course 1990s that Essex had kind of loomed large in the popular imagination partly if not largely due to its characterization within certain sections of the press as a place of kind of stupidity, uh, consumerism, there were Essex girls, uh, there was Essex man, a kind of disloyal, floating, opportunistic 
kind of person. And therefore, the assumption that actually the landscape also carried within all those kinds of problems. And so I thought, well, uh, you know, I'm a writer, I'll write a book about Essex. And I, I collected five box files of stuff, and I wrote nearly 100,000 words. And I started taking around to the publishers. They said, well, this is all fairly interesting, but obviously you're going to start with a story about Essex Girl, or you're going to, you know, give us the rerun of the 1987 uh, national election result when Basildon declared first and surprisingly declared for the Conservatives rather than Labour, as they had traditionally done. And I said, no, what I'm trying to do is to get away from that, try to kind of represent Essex in a, in a different way. And the project kind of died, literally. Uh, the, we were at an impasse. I was at an impasse with these publishers. And the box file sat there for a, a number of years. And in 2004, a photographer called Jason Alton, uh, I met him on another project and we got to know each other. And then one day he said, oh, um, I've been commissioned by Essex County Council. It's the year of the coast to do a series of photographs about the Essex coastline. I said, great, well, let me how it goes. Then uh, a couple of months later he said, look, there's a bit of a problem. Uh, Essex, some of the politicians don't like these photographs. They, they don't think they represent Essex. They wanted beach huts, sunsets, candy flosh, and, plus, uh, and a kind of seaside imagery that actually could be reproduced anywhere. Um, and there's a kind of, you know, the, the officers of the county council are getting nervous about using these photographs because that's not how the politicians want Essex represented. Well, one way of kind of solving this in a way was to write a text accompanying it. And, he said, and I talked to Jason and then some of the people said, if we could actually, if I could write it off, we could construct a text that actually explained the social history of Essex in the 20th century, the rise of industrialism, the land colonies, the religious movements, the outward uh, migration from London and also the inward migration, you know, the arrival of the, uh, Windrush at Tilbury Docks and so on. If we could kind of explain that complicated, very rich, interesting social history, it could give a context to why these photographs now represent this landscape. And that was how we did it. Uh, and I have to be careful what I say, that the, certainly the text was not there to underwrite the photographs. The photographs were photographs in their own right. But it was to set a tension up between the imagery and some of the ideas and the his social history around that and they mm. explain why these images kind of were so powerful. And I've, off, I've worked a lot and thought a lot about the relationship in, between words and photographs. Uh, uh, and uh, you may, this is not, it's absolutely true, I was going to quote uh, two lines from Rilke that I read in Julian's book, <laughs> which I have here, uh, so it's true. We cannot, oh no, that's not, uh, things beckon to us to perceive. So it is this relationship between perception and knowledge. And so when we did, Jason and I did the second book, the first book was called 350 Miles, and that was the, the book about the coastline. When we did the second book, The New English Landscape, I put as the epigram, uh, certainly not knowing I was going to be here tonight, talk about it, uh, from Gombrich, we can never neatly separate what we see from what we know. And it seems to me there's a very powerful kind of relationship between knowledge and vision. And if 
two people can go into the same landscape and one person can trade, read it, they can read some of the archaeology, they can read some of the geology, they can certainly just see the birds and so on. Another person may be looking for something else, but they're not they're not they're in the same place, but they're not actually having in any way the same experience. So this relationship between knowledge and vision is really powerful, I think, in when we're talking about represent representation and landscape. Um, and in Philip's book, um, Philip takes a kind of slightly different thing. He takes an etymological approach to the naming of landscape. Again, it's a very important thing that's totally missing. I mean, I remember a few years ago when the man who did the wonderful book on the seasons, uh, he's a prof- Nick Groom, talked about the failure of the OS maps ever to use local names. Uh, they're all symbols of either military, or obviously church and so on, but they fail to name the landscape. And Philip, in your book, is very much about the naming and the etymological history of how these places got to be named and shaped and represented. So um, adding fuel to the fire, so to speak, was in 2003, the magazine, uh, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but it's worth repeating. In 2003, the magazine Country Life did a whole uh, edition on the English counties and it tabulated their qualities in terms of a whole series of things like retail, heritage, uh, education facilities, and so on. And it had one column for landscape, and it gave Essex no marks out of 10 for landscape, <laughs> gave Devon 10 out of 10. And, you know, this, um, in Essex, this is fighting talk. You know, you, you don't get away with that. Um, because most people, the people who live in Essex, really, and once they got out of their car, they know what a beautiful county it is. So, this issue of representation and the struggle to kind of think about landscapes. I mean, as, as I said at the time, as far as country life concerned, the 20th century had not happened. In fact, the 19th century had hardly happened. They were trying to pretend that we were living in a world in which all these massive economic, social forms of disruption had happened. So, really, the New English Landscape, this book here, the new book, is a kind of, um, I've got uh, a frontal assault on contemporary landscape aesthetics. It's saying we need a new language, we need a visual language, we need a new etymology of how to think about these new landscapes. And towards the end of this book, I... I luckily came across, I mean, I mostly write about landscape architecture in which uh, British landscape architecture is, is rather in the doldrums at the moment. It wasn't always. Uh, in Europe, they're much more used to doing big new landscaping projects in post-industrial areas and so on. But there are two artists uh, in, this, in the United Kingdom who I think still speak across the world in a very interesting new way. One is Ian Hamilton Finlay, I admire him enormously for his reintroduction of the notion of inscription in the landscape. Uh, Very, very important, inscribing the city, inscribing the countryside, referring back to what had gone (coughs) before. But the other is Derek Jarman, who amazingly, in a plot of land that's probably no more than 60 metres by 20 metres, 
allowed us to think completely again about the use of indigenous uh, vegetation, found materials to create a completely new landscape. And there's a little exchange he has about this in his wonderful uh, book called Modern Nature, in which he's at a party with um, Maggie Hamblin. Uh, that must have been great, Maggie Hamblin and Derek John. <laughs> Uh, these are from Jarman's diaries. He, he, and he met, he, he was at a, a, a gallery launch with Maggie Hamlin. I was describing the garden to Maggie Hamlin uh, to Gaila Roken, and I said I intended to write a book about it. She said, Oh, you finally discovered nature, Derek. Well, I don't think it's really quite like that, I said, thinking of Constable and Samuel Palmer's Kent. Ah, I understand completely you've discovered modern nature. <laughs> and it's that sense of modern nature and these landscapes that are emerging that often are very rich in flora and mm, fauna exactly. uh, and uh, things coming back, coming back through the back door that I think is very, very important. So this place, the notion of place does need a very big debate about what we'd regard as beautiful and not beautiful, because a lot of people will take their reading from what other people are saying about what is beautiful and not beautiful. And I think we have a responsibility to kind of open up these issues, very important aesthetic and issues of representation, in which uh, Julian's book and Philip's book are fantastic examples of that local precision. And I think we're all in debt to people like uh, Annie Dillard and, and Robert McFarlane and so on. But there is this Reinscribing of the landscape, re-representation of the landscape, which I think this evening is part of. And it's very, very important to carry on. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Ken. And uh, slight frustration that you stole my kind of closing summary comments um, with his wonderful observations just now about how these three books link. I should say, of course, that all books, all the books are wonderfully produced. Um, and uh, you know, beautiful artefacts celebrating, of course, the subject matter that they explore. Um, interesting side note that Ken's, of course, is, is spied Orton and Walpole. Now, I like the fact that Ken was talking about fighting talk in Essex because it seems to me that Orton and Walpole sound like kind of public interest solicitors, no win, no fee. So if, you don't, if they don't prove their case, then you can get your money back. On the book. Um, I don't want to extend that to Julian and Philip, of course, who are looking for those sales and signings later on. Um, but we'll come on to that in a minute. So more ideas than, than, than we have got time to deal with, I think. But I'd just like to ask each of our contributors a leading question, if you like, before we open it up, because we're all in place. This is a great place. Um, this is, was, was a space once before it was fitted out. Now it's a place and it's uh, celebrating wonderful events like this. So tremendous stuff. Um, Philip, I'd like to talk to you about time briefly, um, because we've got a sense here, um, Ken looking at the kind of post-industrial landscape, you digging deep into uh, the historical, the archaeological landscape. And I wonder if your your move within Cornwall, we should say, of course, you were living already in the county, and yeah. it, it just took this reasonably small shift in geographical terms to open up this kind of exploration for you. I just wonder if you could think out loud for us briefly about how your experience of the time of place has changed through the writing of this book. I mean, time time is, is I think, the key element. I, I quite a lot of um, currency between the idea of landscape and place and what is this distinction. I started off thinking about landscape and then at some point during the book it became place and 
I would still struggle to say the, the distinction between that. But of course, I, I, I feel that the place, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit like a woolly jumper in a way. It has that, that, that sense of, of too much use about it and a slight shapelessness about it. But I think that it really, I mean, place has the element of experience in it mm. and therefore of time. And landscape has the implication to me of something which is literally escaped, something you look at, perceive, Whereas adding to it experience and and certainly time is what is what gives it this this particular resonance that I think we, we've all we've all been talking about. I set off with this task slightly sort of tongue in cheek to, to to tell the history of 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 Britain through place and sustained it um, from the well actually the the Mesolithic it started it in a particular cave where nearby happened to be brought, brought up um, right through to St Ives um, in Cornwall and the um, the the, art, the 20th century artist who represented it in particular ways, um, and I think one of the one of the most interesting things was about the way that place embodies traditions, um, and you can see this. The sense of the interpretation of the Neolithic at the moment is about how somehow these monuments that were put there, stone circles, stone rows, were actually part, a perceived part of a tradition that, that was already going on, possibly an oral tradition, but they were signalling places that were already significant uh, and signalling them with stone. Of course, once those stones are there, they then become part of the landscape and are then perceived in different ways by different generations. And we ourselves, in, in, in hundreds of different ways, have, have an interpretations of those stones. Something like Stonehenge has a kind of huge cacophony of, of, of different interpretations about it. So time, I think, is, is, is key in place. And in a sense, you know, when, when one is struck by landscape and, and, and responds to a place, I find, and I think it's, 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 it's not just me, that actually the, the way it takes you is, is, is backwards in time and a way to unravel the, the sort of accumulated experiences that have gone in in that place. And I think that's the most, the most, I found it the most rewarding way to look at places uh, was, to, was to see how they contain this, this continuity. A certain amount of research was required, but it all built up landscape into place. Well, thank you very much indeed. That's in incredibly helpful. And in a sense, leads us on to my question to Julian. Julian, you, you don't uh, have that, you know, Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. personal biographical connection to the place that you now live in. But it's striking um, that, that you chose to write to engage more deeply or uh, alongside your deeper engagement with the place over the years that you've lived there. And I wonder if you could think about what it means, and again, we can sort of take the etymology that Philip's already highlighted for us here. We think of the word topography, which is a kind of graphic, literally, representation of place. We think of the word topology, which is the word in place. And I just wonder how, how you think about the process of writing as a means of engagement, because clearly you've done that, as have Philip and Ken. 
but you did it to a completely new country and a new site that you had no previous connection with. Mm. So I just wonder how the word, how the writing and and the placemaking meet. I think for me, we you know we arrived uh, we arrived one day at the Presper Lakes. We left London and we showed up in the Presper Lakes with a couple of very 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 large uh, rucksacks, and then we had a couple of very large front sacks as well, and started to try and make a life there. And so my walking and writing and really the sort of discovery of this extraordinary landscape was the process of trying to put down roots and make a home there. And what I hadn't realized until that moment was how so many stories are embedded in the land. And we we worked as organic market gardeners for some years when we first moved out there. And I'll never forget the day I dug up out of the soil an old Ottoman Arabic coin. So presumably it fallen out of someone's pocket at, at some stage working that, that field. So those early years when the book started to emerge and these ideas, and very much it was about trying myself to learn how I might come to be at home in this place through speaking with various people, because ultimately we all have stories of place. And sadly, Rachel Lichtenstein couldn't be here for the panel, but she's one of my favorite writers on place. And what I deeply adore about her writing is that, in fact, she lets other people tell the stories. Hers are often oral uh, records, really, of whether it's Hatton Garden or, or Brick Lane. She brings the stories of the individual residents of that street to, to life. Because I think ultimately we all have connections to place. We all have strong memories of places we might have visited as, as children or places we've sometimes even dreamt about. We might not even ever get there in our lives, but they're, they're there. They're somehow part of ourselves. So for me, it was really about trying to discover this land, this potential new home. But it was also about, going back to the Rebecca Solnit line, it was also about trying to work out who I was because I'd left London because I didn't want to live here anymore. And the, the reason that that has remained a very powerful idea for me is because when I come back to London every year or so, I feel much closer to this place because I realized that what I was leaving wasn't the city, but it was leaving my own uh, kind of fractured sense of what this place was. I couldn't make it work for me because place we sometimes seem to slot in so nicely and sometimes we don't. We kind of fall out of place and I'd fallen out of place here. But when I come back, I see it with renewed eyes because I think our entire process, each day, the way we make place, of course, a daily practice, it's not showing up next year in some place that you decide you want to go visit. But as we step out into the evening here, there'll be a flicker of light off these the, the Christmas decorations or there'll be somebody you notice on the street. All of that, every last small detail is about place. And I think when we open ourselves to that, the place unfolds and it arises around us and we become part of it. So the Presbyterian Lakes for me was very much about trying to open myself as much to allow that land to speak. And it still tells extraordinary stories, despite the fact that I've lived there for 14 years, a walk across the hills. I still listen because it, it will never exhaust itself of, of stories. And I think we all have that potential wherever we are. And as the, as the great American writer Sigurd Olson once said that, awareness is becoming acquainted with environment wherever we happen to be. So. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, I mean, that very naturally, again, leads into my, 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 my question, if you like, to Ken before we open out. I mean, that sense of being acutely aware, which has run throughout the evening so far, Ken, to the place one's in, and then to making, if you like, a new topology, a new topography of place through the observations that one makes uh, in writing, in photography, 
and other media is crucial to how you've been obviously trying to reimagine what the aesthetic nature of that place is for us. And I just wonder if you, if you could think a little bit more for us about how the vision you're trying to, uh, and successfully, uh, I and many other readers would argue, uh, promote in this book meets the limits of official thinking about what is allowable place. Because it seems to me that's the crucial tension uh, in, in our present moment. Development is rampant, as Julian himself said as well. And we're, we're fighting to defend places that don't officially belong to the canon of the acceptable. Mm. So the language by which we talk about these places is actually not just a, an aesthetic or a literary pleasure, but actually an environmental and a campaigning necessity. Yeah, this is a very difficult question um, because uh, the forces in kind of in, in favour of regulating place, commodifying place, endlessly reproducing, reproducing the same space, <coughs> as you say, you know, the same kind of spaces wherever, just cookie-cutting them out all across the way, is very powerful. But I do think uh, that the language of environmentalism, and for take, for example, Essex, Essex actually does have the largest wildlife, uh, Essex Wildlife Trust, the largest wildlife trust in the country. And every so often, uh, and in the book, I, I pay homage to, I think, one of the great books of the 20th century social history, which is Hildegree's account of the 1953 floods in Essex. It's 950 pages long. It took her seven years to research and write. She provides literally a minute-by-minute minute account of the floods in every, all, the, uh, all the, the rescue services and so on. Uh, and, and pays homage to the, you know, the selflessness of people on that night in rescuing others. Um, and of course, flooding is now, you know, something that is very actively being engaged with in Essex. And the, the Essex is pioneering the notion of realigning sea walls instead of carrying on building higher, more and more concrete up to kind of uselessly kind of try and keep out the sea. There's a new way of thinking about uh, allowing the sea to strategically flood certain places, create salt marshes, using the environment to respond to what is obviously uh, a human but also a political uh, dilemma. Um, but uh, one can't be too optimistic, uh, despite you know the, the the great success of the RSPB and the interest in bird life in this country. Uh, the species are in all in decline. Uh, we haven't really challenged um, mass production agri agriculture, which has probably devastated the landscape in Britain more than any other thing since the war. Um, but you can't, you know, if you're if you, you know, if you're pessimistic, you then leads to inaction. Um, and I do think this kind of issue of representation is very important in books like. Julian Phillips' book, and I hope, you know, this book, and a lot of other forms of travel writing, which, as you say, Gareth, in your very nice little piece when you were promoting this, that staying in place now is the polit politics of... It's not travelling across the world in exotic places, it's kind of digging where you stand and kind of and um, opening up the possibilities for local action at where you are. And therefore, it, it's very important to value the landscape because if people don't value it, um, they won't kind of defend it. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it, ah, yeah. There are powerful forces against us. 
But, you know, <coughs> you can't beat an idea whose time has come. <laughs> powerful forces in favour of the ideas that we're proposing tonight. As you've heard, three representatives of powerful forces and powerful words. To go with those forces, um, please do come back now uh, with comments, thoughts, responses, challenges. Uh, Roving Mike, I think, has woken up at the back. He'll be out and about um, to whoever would like to grab hold of him. Um, would anyone like to give us a sense of their, their sense of place? Yes, just there, please. Thank you. Hi. Um, it's a question for Julian mainly. Um, I'm interested in what took you to the Presper Lakes. What, what made you decide to go there? You say that you had grown tired of London. It wasn't working for you anymore. How did you know that the Presper Lakes would work for you? Or was it a process of making it work for you? I suppose I'm just interested in this in terms of us having a kind of spiritual home mm. or you know, having, yeah. having a sense yeah. similar to what Philip was saying about knowing that he, he had to get this house, he had to be in this place. Yeah. There was, a, there was a great deal of serendipity. Uh, we, we, we realized that we needed to get out of London. We ideally wanted somewhere where we could grow some of our own food, where we could step out the door, hopefully, and be walking in meadows or over hills, and also perhaps have a bit more space and time to kind of uh, cultivate our, our passions and interests. But we, we really had no idea where to go. And I, I actually grew up in Canada, so that was one place that we considered. And we, we had a kind of imaginary basket and we, we jotted Canada down on a slip of paper and dropped it in this imaginary basket. And there was all kinds of paperwork, so it didn't quite work. And on a particularly boozy night, we dropped, we, we jotted down Madagascar and put that in the imaginary basket and woke up phenomenally hungover and took it back out because we didn't know how we would go about making a, a life for ourselves there. But at the time, we were members of the RSPB and used to receive their quarterly magazine. And at the back of the, one of the issues, there was a wonderful review for a book called Prespa, a, man, a story of man and nature, which was written by a Greek biologist called Yorgos Katsadarakis. And we thought, we'd never heard of Prespa, we couldn't really find it on the map, but it was a glowing review that talked of these rare pelican colonies and brown bears and wolves in the woods and stone hermitages and villages. And so we thought that sounds like a fabulous place to go and spend a week on holiday, go bird watching around the lake, walking in the mountains, eating food in the village tavernas. So we ordered the book, and a couple of days later it arrived in the post. And that evening we came home from work and started leafing through it, and we opened a bottle of wine and looked at some photos, read a few passages aloud to one another, opened another bottle of wine, and by the end of that evening, just like that, we decided that we were moving to this mountain village beside the Presby Lakes. It really was just a, a wonderful moment of serendipity that we'd been out looking had opened ourselves, I suppose, to the possibilities of where we might go, and suddenly here was this place that presented us. But we didn't really know what to do once we got there. So that's a kind of another story about digging in and making a home for yourself. And that's quite different from the, the, the original shift. But it was, and I think sometimes places, there, there, there can be dreams. They can, you can end up in a a place that you know you never really have an idea that's going to be there until you get there and sometimes if you follow those paths they'll they'll take you so i hope that partially answers the the question it does thank you yeah. you're welcome thank you very much yeah question here uh, do please if you could just uh, wait for the uh, microphone just because we are recording science you see um, i'd like to draw our speakers a bit more on the very central issue that philip raised about the relationship between time and place and particularly change over time in places, because he's become more and more historical in his books. This is the deepest time depth, I think, in this book 
of any of his books. And it's, it's fascinating the way the, this shows right through to the present. But I'd particularly like to ask Julian, he, as he's just told us, chose to go to a place which I happen to have been to long oh, really? ago. And it's on an intersection of what are now three fairly modern states, Macedonia, Albania, and Greece. And I'd like to ask him how he related the passage of time and change over time to life around the Presper Lakes on this extraordinary borderlands, which it now is. You're precisely right that it is an extraordinary borderland, and the, the three countries that share the lakes are at very different stages in many ways. We're speaking about time here, and that Albania, for example, was sealed like a time capsule for the best part of 50 years. And when we arrived in the year 2000, you saw almost no vehicles. It was solely horse and cart. Uh, and there was uh, this extraordinary range of bunkers that Enver Hoxha, the dictator, had sort of built around the, the country. So as soon as you crossed the border into Albania, you it felt actually, for me, like stepping deeply back into time, some many, many decades. And in the time that we've been there, there have been significant shifts for all three countries. But where they join around the lakes, there is a kind of commonality and people cross the border. So despite the sort of difference of chronology or the, the processes they're going through, they do retain both a distinction and a sort of common sense of shared experience around these three, three lakes. And people know one another on, on, on the different sides of the lake of have family sometimes or have traveled backwards and forwards. So it's a curious experience to travel around three different countries in a day because you really are passing through a series of different times. What about the linguistic division? The linguistic division, it's funny because some people ask me, how can you live in such a remote place? But it's probably one of the most multicultural and cosmopolitan places I've ever been to because you have... Greek, you have Albanian, you have Slavic Macedonian, uh, you have Roma, uh, all these languages, you have Vlach, which is a kind of variant of, of Latin. These all exist around these two lakes. And that's a fascinating element. And for the most part, Greek has become the kind of common uh, linguistic tongue, primarily because a lot of Albanians work in Greece. So it really is a rich, rich place where three countries come together. It's a, it's a crossroads region, a meeting ground for both environments, landscapes, people, cultures, religions, and <coughs> ideas. It's occasionally been fraught with serious difficulties, but still attempts to achieve some kind of a whole. Thank you very much. Um, just before we go to uh, another uh, question, if, if yes. there was, could, yeah, yeah, please, then I'll... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting. Um, question because uh, earlier today I was uh, there was a House Commons kind of committee on looking at the future of the Durham Valley and Sheffield and uh, I was giving evidence there on what is the, what is the kind of aesthetics now of these kind of post-industrial stuff but there was a the man there John Rodwell who I quote in my book who tells the story and he told it again today that his grandfather worked in the mines uh, near um, Sheffield uh, and um, when the mine was closed about 15 years ago, uh, they took all the filing cabinets, all in the administrative buildings, they threw them down the pit and they concreted it over and they leveled the site and it's as though nobody ever was there before 
and there were no records of the humans who worked there and the humans who died there before. And you raise this issue of uh, development. I mean, there is a year zero approach in modern planning and development, which is to erase the past and pretend it never existed so we can all start again. And so I think part of this struggle over landscape aesthetics is how you represent the past. Um, and a very good example, if you want one um, to see how this can be done very sensitively and the past articulated in the present, if you go to Rainham Marshes, which was under the military occupation for 200 years, handed over to the RSPB in 2000, uh, the, la the wonderful landscape architect Peter Beard went back to 5,000 years ago to the, and with an archaeologist, they found all the tracks that were made of brushwood. <laughs> it's on the River Thames. And they've mapped them and they've recreated them and they've recreated the reed beds uh, and they've reintroduced grazing and he's done this one, these wonderful boardwalks and bird hides and bridges. And it's a fantastic landscape, but it does refer to 5,000 years of history. And, it's, and Peter Beard is a modernist landscape architect. And this, we, you are seeing the best of these landscape architects who are going back that far in history to say as they could, that a landscape is a force field and what you've got to do is to bring up the energies back to the surface <laughs> again and to articulate the ridges and, and so on. You can't level things. And... Um, so time is an absolutely crucial element of this debate about representation. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Philip, just uh, thinking about yeah. your sense of travel uh, in sites similar to where Julian lives now, mm. border sites, sites of contested language and history and so on. Um, I'm really interested in how you, you kind of came to place later when you came home. I mean, your books, of course, are by definition soaked in the details and the observations and the understanding of, of, of many, many uh, off-site places, should we say, off-site to most of us anyway. But why do you think it was that, that the, the idea of place as a, as a framing device often did not surface until you came home and settled, more or less settled? I didn't notice. <laughs> I didn't see it. I mean, I mean... It's, it, it's easy in a way to abstract things in a way but it gets away from the sort of meat of, of, of subjects, places that I've, that I've loved in the past. And then you stand back and say, well, of course, there's a pattern here. But actually, you know, it's, 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 it, it's a thing particular to, to its subject. When I started to do this book, I, I realised that place and that sense of, of, of being in a place where the presence of it is, is powerful enough to dictate one's whole thinking, one's whole being. Um, and there are particular places that do that, obviously different places for different people. But those are the places that have always interested me. I mean, Ethiopia was, was the first place I visited. And this has this extraordinary um, tension, if you like, between the way it's been perceived by the outside, this mythology that's generated about it as the reality. And it, and it sort of it's a place that generates mythology and many of the places I realise now that I've been interested in have that capacity and I started obviously Cornwall has has the same thing and one of the things that fed into this book was the idea of wanting to write about Cornwall you know one of the fake ideas one starts with I think what was interesting in hearing uh, Julian talk about about these these identities these sort of national ethnic identities is that place actually is much more particular than that it's not about region 
And um, there's an interesting distinction made by um, the American geographer Yifu Tuan um, in his wonderful book, Topophilia, about the distinction between vertical perceptions, he puts it, and horizontal perception. And traditional society with very much smaller reference, physical reference, geographical reference that we have, typically what you can walk to in half a day, say, that, that sort of um, scale of land. And, and the references are vertical towards deities, divinities. And he says that, say, nominally at the time of the Reformation, that our perceptions began to become horizontal as we became more aware geographically of the shape of the world and therefore lost this sort of vertical reference. And I think place, my experience of place, is that it's to do with vertical perception and, and the, the, the residual idea that we have, and it is very residual, of vertical perception, those small scale. And even a place like Cornwall, it's a, it's a construct, and certainly nations are, are, are constructs. And our reference typically to, to place and to areas is much smaller scale than that. And I think one of the refreshing things I found in this was to, was to revisit that and to look at things in a, in a, in a much smaller way and, and to sort of bring in one's perception. Um, I live, the, the house we got is at the end of a very, very bumpy drive and days go past without, um, without me going to the top and I walk to the top each day. But, but that's become my sort of frame of reference yeah. and there's a wonderful um, new sort of sense of discovery I have about it. And it's, it's I, think, I think, much more universal. Interestingly, writing about someone like Cornwall or Ethiopia is, is, is particular. Writing about place, in a way, it's much more universal because that experience of that sort of scale of place is a universal human way that we, we respond to the, the, the areas around us. Could I Thank you. kind of introduce something that slightly problematizes that? I mean, Hugh Brodie, the anthropologist, will say, the basic difference between hunter-gatherers and farmers, those who stayed still. Hunter-gatherers worship the land. The Aboriginals worship the land. They have a name for everything. They wander through it. They, uh, they respect it. Farmers hate the land. They feel chained to it. They have to hand it on to their sons. The sons hate the fathers, um, and so on. So there is this kind of classic, you know, alienation, actually, yeah. often, of farmers from... They, they feel, you know, in the Napoleonic Code in France, you are literally chained to it. I mean, yeah. um, but there is this thing about to stay still is somehow to, to, to be tied to the land in a way that you end up not liking it, whereas those who wander mm. kind of think of it as sacred. Yeah. I don't think a farmer has ever said this is sacred territory. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that, that that notion of richer landscape is, is, is during the early Neolithic, just at the transition from the introduction of, of settled agriculture, and that the ritualising of the landscape was, was, is understood, as I understand it, to refer to uh, pastoralist societies who would have wandered in, and, in for summer grazing, particularly Bodmin Moor, for instance, used for summer grazing, and therefore the landscape had this, this sort of ritual sacred quality to to it, and perhaps it's a. I mean, I think a lot of these these perceptions of, um, of, of it's very speculative. Actually, say more about us, and I think that, that, that our projection, the way that we understand near the society, is to do with our sort of post-industrial farming guilt, and we see this sort of this this notion of the sort of pre-Neolithic as being sort of somehow mm. idealised. 
But I think it is it is still instructive and interesting to to, to discover that moment, that transition between Neolithic mm. and, and and what was done. Um, possibly to sort of license, if you like, license the use of the land, the stripping of it, the cultivation of it, the husbandry that, that went on with it, that the monuments that were erected then were in, a, in order to sort of gain a license to do that. Um, that's, that's what some of the ethno-archaeologists say, which perhaps says as much about us as it does about Neolithic society. A, a, a flourish of hands um, in the last minutes. Let's move very quickly, if we could, um, to yes. Please do very quickly uh, make uh, comments. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it's fascinating, uh, but I'm struck how much uh, of what you've talked about is about rural or semi-rural. How much could be seen as sort of nostalgic, perhaps uh, pejoratively, backward-looking, conservative, and how to engage with the reality that uh, the UK. For example, there's been an urban society, a majority of urban society since 1850. Most people live on council estates, suburbs, high-rise, etc., etc. Are they always and inevitably the enemy? Are they something that you have to ignore in this description of place? Thank you. Very important point. Big, big question. Um, would anyone like Ken? Can you um, briefly anyone to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think place is is all around us. I don't see urban spaces is the enemy at all because we all share a relationship to a specific place around us and some of my finest experiences of places has been in, in urban areas I think what you know and, and if I there's a wonderful novelist called Melissa Harrison who's written a lovely book called Clay set in South London and she talks about the connection that people have to this small tiny patch of green next to the council estates and that is so essential to those lives and it's absolutely no different to a national park because it's about our relationship to these places so I think the urban world is no different I think we we I mean Ken actually lives here in London so you know he's obviously engaging it with on a daily level but no I think you raise a really critical question but I wouldn't agree necessarily that this is a completely urbanized society because you step outside of the cities and there's vast vast landscapes. The Hoo Peninsula, which I've been researching the last year, is only 30 miles from London and is probably one of the most extraordinary open grazing marsh areas I've ever been to in my life. It's 30 miles, so few people. I went into Stanford's to buy a map when I first uh, tried to explore the area and he said, well, where's that then? You know, he probably could give me a map to a rural part of Tibet, but he couldn't find me something for, for this place. Because I think that what's important for me isn't these majestic landscapes. It's not necessarily the the urban either. It's it's all of the places that we relate to because we all live different lives and in different places. But it doesn't mean that the process we go through is any different. So I certainly don't think that there's an enemy. It's about how we how we choose to value the places, whether it's urban, which where we mostly live, or, or elsewhere. Thank you. I mean, yes. All I all I tell that is that I I live in. Country surrounded by farmlands and it tends to look the same. I'm I'm envious in a in, in a sense of the richness of place because I think that the urban environment has certainly has a much more visible, much more vibrant sense of of, of the past. It's much more immediate. Uh, different architecture doesn't. It's not just about the crops that were that, that were sown last last month or whatever. And also the the diversity of of community. I mean that that sense of place which is which is tied up with the experience of, of people. Much richer, much much more immediate, many more, much more sense of oral tradition. So I think, in in, in a sense, place is, is 
we tend to think, as I think you were implying, of place being all about sort of birds and, and the natural world and, and this sort of thing. But I think you know what I what interests me in this was was what was the story of people, both who, who've loved place, and I think the urban environment has has a much richer uh, diversity than I do at home, and I'm rather envious of anyone who lives in London in that sense. Thank you both. Uh, we, I think we have two more. Um, all of you have sort of spoken about engaging with a specific place and how that's in some way different to kind of traditional travel writing. And yet for all of you, the place you've engaged with has involved a displacement from somewhere else. And I wondered how important that was for the process of writing about somewhere and whether that tapped back into what Ken was saying about um, sort, of, sort of parodied hatred for, for your traditional landscape, whether, that, whether there was anything in that. Thank you. The idea of displacement as necessity. Mm. So I, could, I mean, I did, well, just I mean, personally, I, I found yes, this this. I mean, there is a privilege of displacement, and you have that freshness, and you come and you discover a, you you discover a place. Um, and I certainly, for me, I didn't start off talking about talking about uh, writing about place. It was the personal discovery of place, but also realizing that. Not so much the people who've, who have lived in particular places, but other, but but the great history of topographers themselves and people who have 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 given their lives to, to studying and unraveling um, the, the sort of complexity of, of, of different places. W.H. W.G. Hoskins is the is a sort of example who sort of invented the idea of landscape um, history, where where you sort of un, unravel things. Um, and I think yes. How, how you live, you know, if you happen to live there, or if you're discovering for yourself, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. It's all it's it's all there. Um, I think for for me, the displacement was was really was crucial because what it did was it forced me to open my eyes to everything that I'd left behind. Actually, and my relationship to place beyond where I live now has changed because of it. And I think the the sheer mathematics of our existence, the kind of extraordinary short span of time we're gifted on the planet, actually means that. We're really only able to know a handful of places with the kind of depth that's made possible by long tenure. There simply isn't enough time otherwise. But there are ways of going about even as we move, because it's also important to accept, I know we're talking about staying put, but we also live within a, a civilization that is constantly on the move. We live mobile lives. And so anybody who's read my book will know that, that birds play a large role in my life and writing, and they, they astonish me for all kinds of reasons. But to answer your question as well, that birds also teach me a lot about the world. And one of the birds I see most frequently in northern Greece is the kestrel. And I adore its sort of artful and elegant hover, that sort of floating anchor in the sky. And film studies have shown that a, that a kestrel's eyes move less than six millimeters while it hovers. So that for each shift of the wind, it compensates with perhaps a forward stretch of its neck or a slight tilt of its tail. But the point of this is that Amidst all of that wild beating of wings, the kestrel is essentially still. And I wonder if that's how we might go about approaching place, by being in motion and being still at the same time. So that's how I try now to go about the places, because we all pass through places, on the bus, on the train, on holiday, visiting family. We, even when we stay put, we're not truly staying put. 
because our lives spread out like a myriad of tributaries elsewhere. But that doesn't mean that even whilst on the move, we can't kind of foster an everyday awareness to what is there in a slanting light and near enough to touch and taste, I think. Yeah, there's a social researcher called Brenny Brown who says that a lot of children carry into adulthood creativity scars. They've been told they can't be creative. And so they shut down their perception. They just stop looking. Um, now, I'm aware, just listening to all of you, that I can you know, feel the doors of my perception awakening, and I'm sure that's true for lots of other people. And it, it's what awakened that perception in you and also enabled you to embrace the vulnerability of writing uh, where you might open yourself up to creativity scars because obviously then there's reception of what is written. So that was just to say thank you for, uh, I think you are awakening perception in other people and that's a very important thing. But what did it for you and, and how were you able to be vulnerable uh, in actually writing? Um, Thank you very much. Um, yes, I, 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 I mean, it sparked something off of what you were saying. Um, was in a sense we're talking about all this. I mean, uh, Anthony Burgess says that a writer must choose that subject about which he's going to write best. And for me, I, I've been fascinated about the relationship between my response to, to landscape and its conversion into language. And in a sense, that's, although it's, no, it's not mentioned at all in the book, as a personal engagement and as a personal sort of motivating factor, that's what interests me of, of, of standing before a landscape or, or in a particular place or, or, or whatever, and then seeing how that triggers this um, sense of, of language, because that's, that's what, you know, if I was a painter, it'd be painted, but, it, but for me, it's language, and any writing is, is language. So the relationship between language and, and landscape, but, but but your point is is about that that sense of of powerful response, and I think mm. that's again what what lies between it. For me, I respond in language, um, and, and I found myself responding more and more to to landscape and and, and the natural world, um, and that's the sort of key thing. And I think I think all of us, you know, for me, it was a revelation, a rediscovery, um, possibly of a sort of faculty that was there in childhood, and one sort of peels back and scratches away and then you find little traces of it. Um, but it's a, very, I mean, it's a very interesting point to make, I think. Thank you. I think in some ways perhaps it's been answered throughout the evening, but thank you for a very important question. Um, it strikes me that in a sense all these books could be called home ground in lots of ways. Phillips is called rising ground. But I can absolutely imagine that home ground is a title taken by a living room latte operation in Shoreditch as we speak. Um, so I won't suggest that anyone retitles for the, for the next edition. Um, but I would, of course, uh, urge you to think about the idea of spirit wrestling because Philip's earlier book, The Spirit Wrestlers, looking at extraordinary uh, sects and, and uh, followings in, in uh, Russia, um, suggests, again, the subtitle of his own book, A Search for the Spirit of Place, and all are wonderful participants have been wrestling with the spirit of place, challenging, uh, often a slightly different perspectives as you would in any landscape, of course. Um, and I've also noticed that if you buy all three books, 
you actually get a very neat risen ground. They all fit neatly within each other, um, from which you can then survey the larger landscape of base writing and acknowledge that, that these three are, are, are well above them. So I think there's all sorts of options. If they weren't published by different publishers, then I would say we could do a three for two, but we can't, of course. Um, but do please engage with all these three books. Let's not be um, shy, and of course not shy away from the challenges that we face around the securing and celebrating of place. In an interesting twist or an abuse, shall we say, of the idea of Albion, some of you might have known, uh, been following the story around the New Era um, housing estate in Hackney, which is uh, currently being traded like goggles dead sold by various international venture capitalists. Um, interesting that uh, Richard Bennion, the Tory MP, has now pulled out of this operation um, with his estate company, um, but has been replaced by Knight Frank. Anyone here from Knight Frank? I'm happy to spirit wrestle you outside afterwards. Um, Knight Frank currently have a rental property um, on their books in Albion Terrace in Battersea. It's a four-bedroom, four-bathroom apartment, and it's currently on the market for £13,000 a week. This is a flat... Let's call it a flat, not an apartment, it's a flat for £13,000 a week in Albion Terrace. That seems to me one of the greatest linguistic abuses of the idea of Albion that we've been <laughs> celebrating tonight, um, that we could come across recently, but you know, useful in this conversation, I guess. Um, do please enjoy all that the LRB shop has to offer, all sorts of new developments coming soon in the new year as well, I've, I've heard. Um, but before you do that, and before you buy all these wonderful books, do please thank our wonderful panel tonight. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.